Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thank you for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Sam, CEO and co-founder of OneScreen.ai, an offline advertising platform that's raised $10 million in funding. Sam, thanks for chatting with me today. Thanks for having me, Brett. Yeah, no problem. And could you go ahead and give us the pronunciation of your last name? I, uh, we were talking about in the, in the pre-interview. I didn't want to butcher it there. So if you can say it for us, that'd be great. I appreciate that. It's uh, Malakarjanan. It's phonetic. It's just long. <laughs> nice. I love it. All right, Sam, well, let's dive right in. So could you just start us off with a quick summary of who you are and a bit about your background? I know it's been a really crazy background. You were a Harvard professor, you worked at HubSpot Lab. So let's talk about it. Yeah, so I hosted an AM FM talk radio show about cigars in Florida. That's how it started. This is back in the mid 2000s. The cigar industry folks needed help like building websites and such. So I, you know, knew how to do basic HTML, things like that help them build their websites. Then they wanted to make money with their websites, which I did not know how to do. Googled around, found this company called HubSpot. Wasn't really qualified. Marketing wasn't my background. I don't have a college degree. So I built a site called HireMeHubspot.com to register for the free webinar on why you should hire me. That worked pretty well. Worked at HubSpot for almost eight years, led HubSpot Labs and HubSpot's expansion to Latin America. And then, uh, yeah, left in uh, 2018 to work for a company called Flock.com. And then post-pandemic, I've been the CEO here at OneScreen.ai. And yes, I taught advanced marketing at Harvard University for a while. I also taught at University of South Florida, but like no one seems to care as much, even though I really like USF. So <laughs> Harvard just sounds cooler, but I, I, I can see that. Power yeah, brand. Of... <laughs> yep, absolutely. Now, um, what is HubSpot Labs exactly? Could you explain that for us? HubSpot Labs had a relatively simple mandate, which was... If you were going to kill HubSpot and you were a nerd in your like parents' basement going to MIT, how would you do it? Figure it out, test the hypothesis, and then do it to ourselves before somebody else does it. It was based on Clay Christensen, you know, who was you know the original progenitor of the disruptive innovation framework, on his the innovator's dilemma concept, which is very hard for an internal company which is designed for efficiency to do something which is inherently inefficient, which is innovation and self-disruption. So things like the sales hub came out of HubSpot Labs because if you sell a marketing executive a stack, you have an easier time selling to their sales organization and vice versa. And we knew, you know, what happens if Salesforce eventually buys a marketing software company. Lo and behold, they bought Pardot. So that's one success story. There are 10,000 more failures that come up with every one of those success stories. But that was the mandate of HubSpot Labs, which is, we could build off stack. We could use whatever tools we wanted. We didn't have to use the company branding. It was very much like IBM with Project Chess, where it was like you could break all the rules, but you couldn't be the second person to figure out something interesting that was going to happen in the industry. Wow. That is so cool. That must have been a blast being part of that and running that. It was interesting. You have to have a certain appetite for repeated failure and disappointment. And then when you succeed, it's taken away and given to a core team. So... <laughs> it, you, know, you know, it's like any profession, it has its upsides and its downsides. So you make a baby and then it just gets taken away, essentially, it sounds like. Yeah, if you successfully make a pretty baby that has 10 fingers and 10 toes that is going to grow up to do something interesting, it's taken away and given to somebody else to raise. 
That's painful. Now, HubSpot is such an awesome company, and I really admire how they've built and you know, everything that they preach just really aligns with everything that I preach, I guess, probably because I've learned it from HubSpot, but just an amazing company. And I'm sure you learned a lot there. But if we had to distill it into like one or two things that you really learned at HubSpot and walked away with, what would those things be? The two primary things are one, everybody thinks HubSpot is this like happy, fluffy, lovey company, make love, not spam, yada, yada. They are math nerds. They are MIT Sloan alumni, a lot, most of the executives are the original executives. Every person at the company had a familiarity with the unit economics, like the target customer acquisition cost to lifetime value ratios for all the different buyer personas. The analytics that we were doing back in the day was very, very precise. Like they're just really, really good at the mechanics of managing the yield on cash, which sounds super boring and not at all HubSpotty, but that's the real like magic behind HubSpot. And that was something where I didn't even know I was supposed to be good at that. Like my first company meeting, they started like going over the unit economics with everybody in the company. And I'm like, I'm a marketer. I didn't realize I was supposed to understand like CAC to LTV as a ratio. Uh, so that was lesson number one is like, you can't fund the art without the science. Lesson number two was very much about the culture, which I think is something I'm not particularly good at. And it's not something HubSpot did intentionally. If you ask anybody that they didn't set out to design any particular culture. But the power of that culture of, you know, like the e-com team that I built with some other HubSpot employees on nights and weekends, like how the hell did you get us to work nights and weekends to build like part of the team? And we were excited about it. We were proud of it. You know, the really powerful alumni group we had, I ran an analysis a couple months ago. There's 286 former HubSpotters that have executive level titles at other companies now. And like that, the positivity, the resilience, and then the culture permeates into the community too. Like HubSpot, I'm sure wishes people had forgotten about this, but we had a best-selling book written about how we were really terrible managers. And it was sad, which is, you know, why they changed all the names and exaggerated things because the details and facts weren't actually true because the details and facts aren't funny enough. But what was interesting to me was not just the resilience of the HubSpot culture when that situation happened, but how like we didn't even have to defend ourselves. The community defended us. Because if you have an authentic corporate culture, that will permeate into your community of customers. If you do not have an authentic corporate culture, your customers are going to know about it. Like there's no amount of like PR spin that's going to fix that. So th those would be my two. I had to pick two biggest lessons. One is you got to have the math, the science in order to, to do the art really effectively. Those two things aren't separate, they're related. And then two, whether you're good at it or not, I'm not sure if it's something that can, can be intentionally designed or not. It's something I spend a fair amount of time thinking about but it is an incredibly powerful force in terms of whether or not you're going to be successful as a company. All things being equal, exact same funding, strategy, skill sets, everything else like that, the company with the better cultures is still going to win. And that book you mentioned there, is that the one that was written by a journalist who was hired on the content team and then decided to just basically write a book roasting HubSpot? Yep, yep, that's him. I read I, that when it came out in like 2017. I remember just thinking like, I mean, honestly, just what a stupid book. Um, it just seemed very unfair. I think if you took a deep look inside of any big successful tech company, yeah, you're going to find some weird things for outsiders. And yeah, it may seem stupid, but the whole premise of the book and you know, how he went about it and how he mocked the culture, I just found it to be a very, very dumb idea. And I didn't really uh, find it that compelling at all. Yeah, well, I mean, one of the upsides of not being at HubSpot anymore is, you know, they took the high road and didn't really comment on anything. I don't work there anymore, so I can say what I like feel now. Journalists make incredible content marketers because they're good at educating. They're good at asking questions. That's why they're 
like crushing it with chat GPT is people who are really good at asking questions. They're good at telling stories. So that, you know, that was the theory. It's like, let's bring in less just like writers, right? And more journalists, people who could really, you know, create content. But that startups are uniquely hard, right? Like we make data-driven decisions. You know, we are to an extent beholden to some things like social media algorithms and search engine optimization algorithms. And, you know, this is like how we drive business. It's not a pure, purely academic environment. And it's also incredibly fast paced. And you have to get comfortable with doing things you have never done before, like, you know, statistical analyses on, you know, what types of content you're going to write or or things like that. And so I definitely see, obviously, if somebody writes a book about how terrible you are as managers, I feel you should read it. And so like, you know, it was exaggerated because he needed to make it funny in order to make it sell. And it was objectively funny, whether it was true or not is, you know, neither here nor there, but it was objectively funny. But it was also a lesson for me in terms of startups aren't for everyone, right? There are things about them that make them uniquely terrible. They're hard on mental health. They're hard on relationships. They're hard on financials, you know, in the first like five or so years of a startup. And I think that was one of the things that I really learned was like, ironically, HubSpot's like a big company now. And I spend more of my time talking people out of leaving HubSpot because some of the people I still mentor there who think that they're going to go work at some other company. And I'm like, HubSpot's problems are significantly less bad than most other large companies. But also just going to an early stage startup is something you should really think about. That is a big decision to go to an early stage startup because it is going to be harder than most people think it's going to be. And unless you have a secret backdoor publishing deal, (laughs) uh, (laughs) it's unlikely to be something you're going to have a hard time monetizing your misery. (laughs) Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And that's a good call out to that, you know, startups just aren't for everyone. And I think that's okay, right? Not everyone has to be on board and want to work at startups and you experience that culture because it it can be weird. I can see how it could turn someone off, especially if they're used to a more traditional company for their entire career. You go into a startup, and you're like, what the hell is this? You know, there, there's a stuffed animal at the conference table. <laughs> I liked that, actually. It's one of the things that I miss is the fact that the customer is always present. It's why we always have like, we start and end every company town hall with a story either from a, an actual customer who can join or from the customer success team talking about a customer. You know, that's one of those things where it's, yeah, it's dumb sounding to have like a stuffed animal that sits in every executive meeting representing the most important stakeholder who's not there, which is the customer. But it's also effective. And the biggest challenge with startups is the the pace of change and the expectation that you're going to figure it out even if there is no immediately obvious right answer, right? Like, let's be honest, half of running a startup is Googling like, oh, how do I solve this math problem? Or like, how does this work? Or something like that. Like self-educating on, you know, the tools you're using, on the tactics that you're using instead of the historical methodology, which is like, okay, I go to college for four years. I have an entry-level position for three to five years. I have a mid-level position for five, you know, to 10 years. And then I have a senior position for 10 to 20 years and then I retire. That is not how the world works anymore, (laughs) right? Like I just described a 40-year career Think about 40 years ago, we barely had ARPANET or like the internet. Like it was brand spanking new 40 years ago. And so there are people who are in the middle of their career now and the world is fundamentally different than the way it was when they started their career and when they made like decisions that they made, which is like, you know, think about back in the day, like we named our families after our occupations. Like we were Smiths or Wainwrights, like we made wagons, right? Mm-hmm. Now we can't even name our companies after what we do. Because like that changes so often, right? We didn't name it, you know, inboundmarketingsoftware.com. We called it HubSpot, right? And that, that was actually quite intentional because it gave flexibility 
in terms of what the product could evolve into over time. Nice. I love that. Now let's switch gears and let's talk about what you're building. That was a super interesting stories about HubSpot and really cool perspective. But I want to make sure we have a lot of time to talk about one screen because it's so cool. And when I was reading about it, I got so excited. So let's talk about it. Tell me about the origin story. So it's quite weird, actually. So when the pandemic was hitting, I was chief revenue officer at Flock.com. Andre was an executive at Wayfair. He's our chief technology officer, my co-founder. His wife was working at a hospital, obviously, and, you know, fighting on the front lines of the pandemic. And he and I got together with another former HubSpotter uh, named Greg to like think about how we could help somehow anyway, because like we're not doctors, right? We're economists and software engineers, limited impact when it comes to a pandemic. And so we had a hackathon to, that, to say like, how could we help small businesses make more money if they can only have 20 to 50% occupancy? And we're like, well, on the internet, you can have dynamic business models. You can sell your own stuff. You can sell somebody else's stuff. You can sell ads. You can sell subscriptions. There's not necessarily one trick ponies on the internet like there is if you're a barbershop in Boston, right? You generally cut hair. You don't also have, I don't know, a, a skating rink in the back, right? Like you can't combine business models like that. And so we had the idea, what if there's a Google display network for the real world? And we hadn't heard of out-of-home advertising, really. I didn't teach it in my class at Harvard. I told you before we started talking, I'd spent well over $100 million on internet ads in my career, but I bought billboards twice prior to this and once was just to piss off a competitor. Not because I thought about it and decided not to, but it never entered my consideration cycle, right? Like it was always just easier to spend more money on Facebook, more money on Google, run another A-B test. And then obviously that has been dying over the last you know five years because everybody's doing the same thing. Like we've optimized every inch of the internet to death. And now we've got privacy restrictions that are making it harder to target, harder to analyze, and just more people competing on the internet driving up prices. There used to be 10,000 Facebook advertisers, now there's you know, like 10 million Facebook advertisers. So we did this pilot program, and you actually can buy giant checks. Like I think I just Googled giantchecks.com or something like that to hand out to like some of the bar owners and barbershops and stuff in Boston. We built this little device, plugged it into their TV, basically turned their TVs into a connected TV that we could then sell ads on. Then we did what we kind of half-trickingly called a reverse stealth mode. We called everybody we could find in the out-of-home industry, so Clear Channel, Outfront, Lamar, Vistar, etc., told them what we had done and found out that everything we thought we knew about out-of-home advertising was wrong. So first, I assumed it was dying, like terrestrial radio or linear TV. It's the only traditional ad medium still growing. It's doubled in revenue in the last 20 years. Second, I assumed it was like just owned by Clear Channel and Outfront and the big three, but the top 10 media operators combined on less than 7% of the inventory. It's generally a small business in industry. And I assumed that it was mostly bought by a small number of big companies. So like marketers should just have more budget than brains. It's not. It's mostly bought by regional and smaller companies. And now that we're taking a performance marketing approach to it, so how do you use fundamentally similar machine learning methodologies that Facebook or Google uses to determine when on your personal screen, they're going to show you what ads to determine where you should put your billboard or your taxi topper or your wrapped car or whatever. So using that to help you make really smart decisions, creating process automation tools, because this industry still uses like post-it notes and spreadsheets, right? Like large sports venues that you would know the name of use Google Sheets to manage their 1,000 SKUs of advertising inventory. And then on the back end, how can we make it so that you can measure it and you can optimize the campaign? Because performance marketers, we need a chart that can go up and to the right, right? Like 
We need to be able to, it doesn't matter that, it, you know, your first experiment, or your first campaign doesn't work. That doesn't dissuade us. What dissuades us is not having the ability to know what worked, what didn't work and make the first campaign, the worst campaign. So that's really the philosophy. That's what we set out to build. And what we had built, you know, quite successfully, we got really cool brands that are running on the platform where you can use the AI to say, I want to reach, you know, urban drinking technology, early adopters, CEOs in Boston. It'll tell you what inventory to buy. It'll automate all the process for you, printing, everything else like that. And then based on what your goals are, it'll tell you, did people drive past your billboard and then visit your website or, you know, make a purchase or, you know, kind of the normal metrics we're used to with internet marketing. So it's just taking all the stuff we've done, the cool, interesting stuff we've done, the best things that we've done on the internet for the last 20 years and moving them into a four-dimensional context so that you can do more interesting things. And then how does that attribution work? So you know, how does it know if I drove by a billboard, then go to my computer later on and make a purchase? How does it know that? Yeah, so we worked with Northeastern University's data science program. They wanted to publish the first ever academically rigorous peer-reviewed study of out-of-home ROI. We worked with them to develop a methodology on using signals from mobile devices because you're not going to get all of the mobile devices, right? Because some people might have privacy restrictions on, some people don't have smartphones, whatever it is, et cetera. But we get data from a lot of mobile devices, 3 billion or so observations per month. And then we know the view shed from where every piece of inventory is visible. So use a billboard as an example. And so we can tell when a device is driving through the view shed of a billboard. And for some subset of those, people have opted into sharing their information with advertisers. And then we can put a pixel on your website and literally connect the two dots and say that this person... Not like Brad, but like, you know, this anonymized mobile device drove past this billboard and then later visited your website. And then we use a specific algorithm that we developed with Northeastern to not just do attribution. It's not just that you drove past the website and then, or drove past the billboard and then visited the website uh, to create a causal analysis to say that it's, in statistics, we call it rejecting the null hypothesis, which is a really boring thing. Hopefully you edit out and nobody has to hear me say that sentence. But it's proving that like the visitation rate of the website, that conversion was actually caused by the exposure and not just caused by random chance. So that was an unnecessarily technical explanation. It basically works the same way cookies work on the internet. It just has one additional parameter, which is location data. So where was the device when it was exposed to the ad? And then did it take a subsequent action that like fired a conversion pixel? And in the digital marketing world, they're talking about like the end of cookies or like a, a post-cookie era. Is that going to affect this in any way? Yeah, it's going to make our lives a lot easier. Um, <laughs> it's one of those things where, and this has been our thesis from the beginning, is that the ability to abuse people's privacy without their consent was never, it was never smart to build a trillion dollar industry on that supposition. Ironically, while Google and Facebook and everybody else is trying to figure out how to not be creepy, like they're trying to figure out how do I not target Brett? Out of home is inherently a shared experience, right? So like we're always doing cohorts, we're always doing, you know, persona audiences. Like Google's effort to not be creepy was something called they called Flux, Federated Learning of Cohorts. Out of home is inherently an audience cohort based experience. So if all data went away tomorrow, the smartest, most addressable medium would immediately become out of home because at least we have some contextual data. Like if you're in a bar at 2 a.m. on a Saturday, we know something about you. First of all, we know you're not me because I've been asleep for six hours. But like we have that contextual kind of data. And then two, we don't actually need people's personally identifiable information. 
in order to group them into behavioral clusters that you can target and analyze against if you're grouping enough people. Very few people are, you know, have 30 people looking at their cell phone with them that, you know, helps kind of anonymize their data and their behavior. So I think it's going to make it even more important that marketers diversify their thinking in terms of what channels they're going to be investing in. And also, man, here's the weird thing, right? Like (laughs) 20, 30 years ago, marketers were seen as the team that sits in the corners playing with crayons, right? Like there was that survey, like 87% of CEOs don't think marketers can prove they drive business growth, right? Or I know 50% of my marketing budget's wasted, I just don't know which 50%. This was the marketing profession for a long time. And I've spent most of my career trying to convince people to use metrics and analytics and things like that. But we overcorrected. Like Prometheus gave fire to the humans and we used it to burn down our village. Now marketers are expected to draw a straight line from every dollar out to every dollar back in. And that's just not how social science, economics, you know, being a, a subset of social science, just not how it works, right? It's not, this isn't physics. And so I think that is actually a really interesting trend in development right now is everybody got so excited that marketing could be measured to any degree that now people are unwilling to do any marketing or economics initiatives at all that can't be measured to like this myth of perfect perfection, which there is no such thing as perfect marketing and and attribution or analytics. So I think that is the big sort of reaction to this trend, like the death of the cookie and everything else like that. Yeah, it's going to be inherently good for out of home. We're one of the few tech companies in out of home, so it's going to be inherently good for us. But I also think that it's going, the pendulum is going to swing back and we're going to not be the team that sits in the corner playing with crayons, but we're also not like financial analysts who should spend our entire lives in spreadsheets. Like the profession of marketing, the true like balance of where marketing should sit inside of an organization is, is somewhere in the middle between the two. And I would say probably three or four times a year, we end up buying outdoor billboards for our clients that we work with. Uh, most of the time that's in San Francisco or the, the Silicon Valley area. And every time we do, it's so painful. We're like emailing all of these you know, random websites and filling out these painful forms. They share with us these like PDF files or an Excel file where you have to go and like search the address and like it's just the worst experience that I could possibly imagine you ask someone trying to give them like a good amount of money. So can you talk to me about that experience? You know, if I'm a marketer and I want to use the platform to do a campaign and you know, typically ours are kind of what I think you were describing. It's you know a troll campaign or trying to pick a fight with a competitor or a big giant in the industry to get noticed. So as a marketer, I go on the platform. Can you just talk me through what that experience is like and then how that compares to that awful legacy experience that I'm used to? Yeah. One, picking a fight is a completely legitimate marketing objective. If you can get a company bigger than you to respond to you, you've won, which is why smart companies that are bigger don't respond. Yeah. So I was shocked. I actually didn't believe it. So Greg, uh, who's our third co-founder, was working at, I think, Simon Property Group at the time. And he was who first told me that they're still using like Lotus Notes or whatever. And then when we talked to the big companies, and find out that there's literally a person called the chartist who owns the whiteboard at these companies. And if you want to buy a billboard, you call a sales rep. That person goes over to that office, like checks that whiteboard, right? Or maybe they have a spreadsheet that's shared, but it's not synchronized or whatever. And it's just such a miserable buying experience. But this is what makes it so fascinating, right? Anytime you have an industry where the buying experience is utterly miserable, I have not talked to a single person who enjoys the way that buying and selling out-of-home advertising has been historically. But it's doubled in revenue anyways. 
it was like the easiest investor pitch of my life. It's like, <laughs> so this industry is growing and it operates in a ridiculously inefficient way. How much faster would it grow if it operated in a really efficient way? And so this is what's called a SaaS-enabled marketplace. So on the buyer's side, it feels like magic. Like you feel like you're buying something on Amazon or, or anything else like that. But on the backend side, it may be sending 500 emails that are customized. You know, it receives back those spreadsheets like you were talking about. Every company has a different format. And so like it auto maps them back into your dashboard, your interface and things like that. So we took, it's actually not an incredibly technical challenge, just business process automation, ERP, like kind of relatively straightforward stuff. But just that nobody had ever applied to out of home because they didn't need to. Because out of home has been growing like next to banking and the military industrial complex, there are few industries in the United States that have a better track record of economic growth than out-of-home advertising. And so they've never had to innovate. And the only reason they're having to innovate now is because they're getting all these nerds coming from the internet who are like, I don't want to talk to you on the phone. Please don't take me to a steak dinner. Like, I just want to be able to buy through a user (laughs) interface. And I need like metrics and analytics. I need this to be fast, right? Like we talked to one of the major insurance companies what's your goal for out of home? And they're like, we want to be able to plan a campaign in July, launch it in August. And I'm like, I'm going to need more ambitious engineering goals than that. So that's really been the pressure and the impetus for the sell side of this industry to adopt technology like ours is the fact that they're just not equipped to sell to nerdy performance marketers who are used to, in the amount of time it takes somebody to listen to this podcast, I could deploy 50 Facebook ads campaigns. I'd be lucky if I could get the pricing on one billboard in that amount of time without using a platform like ours that does all the automation on the back end. So just because it feels like magic doesn't mean it's actually magic. But <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Now, can you talk to us a little bit about traction and, and the growth that you're seeing? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of headwinds for other industries that are generally like good for us. So we talk about tracking and we talk about the rising costs, decreasing effectiveness of internet ads. Marketers still need to invest money somewhere. And the interesting thing about out of home is it works, right? Like we've got objective, academically rigorous data proving that there is a causal link between billboard exposure and website visitation and conversion. And it's significantly less expensive than, you know, a massive bio-linear TV and things like that. So that kind of traction is pushing stuff our way. And then also, frankly, the kind of macroeconomic situation, because it's essentially commercial real estate, it's much more inflation resistant than perfectly efficient real-time auctions of inventory, you know, like, like there is on the internet. So prices are, aren't really going up that much and out of home like they are online. So our biggest challenge, when we actually talk to a marketer, they're like, oh my God, this is amazing. Our biggest challenge is one, getting marketers to realize that out of home can be a performance medium and that it's more than they think it is because they think it's just billboards and street, you know, bus stops, right? But it's like, you can do branded sandcastles, you can fly lit up drone formations in the shape of a QR code, you can sponsor little league teams, you can park an LED truck in front of the company you're trying to sell to with Brett's face on it, be like, hey, this is Brett, he's going to call you next Tuesday at three. You don't want him to? Go to reschedulebrett.com. Right? Like, you can do so much more with out of home than marketers think they can. But once we get over that hump and help them, we have to blow their minds and then unblow their minds by getting them to calm down and say, okay, you've never done it before. It's also measurable. So like, let's start small, which is, it frankly gives us credibility, but it's also the right thing to do, which as I said earlier with culture gives you credibility. Like if you don't have a baseline of data, don't do a $5 million campaign in San Francisco, right? Start off with like, 
a $5,000 campaign, right? Or a $50,000 campaign. Get that baseline of data and grow your spend over time. So those two things are the only main blockers in terms of us driving adoption. The rest of it, marketers are, I mean, just like your reaction was, you're like, whoa, I didn't realize that out of home is as much as it can be. You know, people holding projectors, you know, outside the conference you're trying to target instead of you spending money to sponsor it. And then also knowing that it's measurable. I think once we communicate those two things to people, we have a very like high success rate with people adopting the medium, much like HubSpot. We didn't sell HubSpot. We sold inbound marketing, right? And then HubSpot was just a logical way to do it. You could have gone and stitched together WordPress and Google Analytics and like MailChimp and like all this crap and just like done inbound marketing without HubSpot. OneStream.ai is very much the same, where if we sell you on the methodology of data-driven performance marketing in an offline context, instead of just being restricted to the internet, you could, in theory, do it without us, right? But we're it, the logical conclusion is that you would do it through the company that, that educated you on what it was. And HubSpot's famous for evangelizing inbound marketing and, and really getting the world to buy into that idea. And then they, you know, really just have led that movement ever since. So for this, do you view it as you're trying to really build like a new movement again or you know, bring people back to the idea of outdoor advertising and, and making outdoor advertising sexy and cool and you know, similar to what we're used to in the digital marketing world? Is that your movement or what's the movement that you're trying to create? Yeah, so delete this from your mind after I say it because a key thing to startups is focus. But the movement we're actually trying to create is to change the economics behind how we monetize physical spaces. So our origin story has not changed, which is if you're a barbershop, you should be able to cut hair. You should also be able to have e-commerce elements. Like the experience economy is a great book from the 90s that people should read. It's like, what if the most powerful commercial channels on earth wasn't just restricted to the internet? What if like we could create dynamic, monetizable experiences in four dimensions because you have the dimension of time in the real world, unlike you do online? That is the real like vision is like, how can we literally change the way that people think about how they design, build, and monetize businesses around physical spaces, just like we did online. You could have a blog, fine. You can sell subscriptions, you can sell ads, you can sell your products, you can sell somebody else's products. You have options and it's easy because there's 10,000 software companies helping you make it easy. In offline media, that doesn't exist. Now, the reason I said forget all that is because that is a vision that is going to take the better part of a decade, I think, to realize because you can't sell cars in a country without roads. Like, <laughs> even if they're fancy AI-powered self-driving cars, you still need roads. And like, we launched the first ever directory of who owns what and where, which sounds really dumb. Like, that's a thing that should have existed. But like you were saying, you had to go to all these websites and try and find out who owns what and where. So like, that's really what keeps me up at night is the order of operations. In what order we solve what problems to create the most value for the most people without losing sight of what our, our original vision was, which is what if we took the best things about the internet, the ability to have a fairly non-technical person have dynamic control over how they create an experience for their customers and, and create a business model. And how do we apply that to the real world so that 10 years from now, there are still small businesses, right? Like, so that my favorite barbershop, you know, can cut hair, but can also, there's that, hell, there's just, just TV commercials and he's paying for the TV commercials that are showing. He should be getting paid for them, right? So it's like, that is the real long-term vision, which is how do we change the way that we monetize physical spaces? The short-term vision is like, okay, there's already monetization happening in short, in physical spaces. Let's make that make sense, bring that into an integrated ecosystem, and then we can grow from there. 
Like my local high school, I lived in Kennedy Space Center, got all the NASA employees and stuff like that. And the people advertising at the high school football field, it's like the local dry cleaner and stuff like that. I'm like, why is Boeing not sponsoring the fence? Right. But it's because there's never been an ecosystem, a marketplace for Boeing's marketing team to know that there is a fence that you can sponsor that all of the parents who work at NASA see. So that's the long-term mission. Amazing. Sam, this conversation has been so much fun. Unfortunately, we're over time here, so I'm going to have to wrap, but we'll have to bring you on again. I have so many more questions for you, and I would love to just keep this conversation going. So before we wrap, if people want to follow along with your journey as you continue to build and execute on this vision, where should they go? You can Google anything even close to my name. Great thing about my name is uh, I have really good SEO for it. And uh, I apparently will be replaced by a chat GPT bot sometime in the near future. So, you know, you don't even have to talk to me. Just chat with it. Sam, thank you so much for joining, talking about what you're building and sharing this vision. This has been a lot of fun. I've learned a lot from you and this was just a really awesome conversation. So thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Brett. All right, keep in touch.